0: Well, good morning, church. I stand here before you today celebrating the baptism of two of our candidates that are now members. Baptism is one of the symbols and signs of the new covenant that unite us as Christians. We're here at the end of a long election week, and boy, was it long, beloved. Now it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to reunite. As I stand here, I'm no fool, even though 1 Corinthians tells us that the gospel is foolishness to the world, but wisdom to those who believe. And being no fool, I know that many of you are very disappointed with the election process. Others of you are very happy with the reported results. Wherever you stand and whatever unfolds in the legal battle, Let us continue to unify around Christ our King. Scripture calls us to pray for our governing leaders, whether we agree with them or not. And ultimately, our identity, we affirm, is in Christ, not in any political party. Our allegiance, like we've been saying, is to our King, and our sovereign God will reveal everything. He will reveal all truth in his sovereign timing, whatever that might be. Now here's what separates us from the world. I think if you're honest and if you look at the election results, it reveals something to us. This was not a landslide victory for either side. The media predicted a landslide victory across the board for the left, and that did not happen. But what that reveals to us is that our nation is still very much divided, a very close race, which means the secular world is still polarized. And we know that evangelicalism will still have some divide. But the church doesn't have to give in to that narrative. The church must be different. I think these next four years will reveal the soul of evangelicalism. I heard one commentator, author, put it this way. And he wrote this prior to the election. And he said, quote, the church must be prophetic rather than partisan, end quote. Prophetic meaning we need to speak to culture rather than allowing culture and society to speak to us and to define our message and our methods. So when it comes to politics, we must allow the gospel to define our politics rather than having politics define our gospel. I know our church tends to be very cautious and conservative. That is our tradition, that is our culture, that reflects who we are. We stand, to s- we stand in the center because we are a church of three congregations, three languages, different cultures. In fact, this election meant different things to different congregations. But at the end of the day, we believe that now the election is over. And as you've seen in, the, in my last few sermons or last four sermons, began to turn the tide and say, okay, now's the time to be prophetic and to speak into our culture. This commentator, he continued to write, quote, prophetic clarity that takes its cues from an eternal agenda speaks to politics rather than from politics or from anything peripheral. Meaning it is not any political agenda. It is not even the conservative agenda that shapes how we preach or we speak or how we conduct our church or how we conduct our Christian living it must be our theology our gospel the scriptures and the church that speaks to how we conduct and understand politics and I say this because once again the secular world will continue to be divided but the church need not be this same commentator continues Quote, the gospel's power is not the power to win elections, legal protections, or economic prosperity. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16, end quote. And this means the power to reunite a divided evangelicalism is not in any political leader. Nor does this unify us around any political party. The power to unite us is actually a very foolish power. It is the power that I am afraid to say that many who stand on the evangelical voting bloc has lost faith in that power. It is an invisible power. It is a power that's not represented by any human being. It is a power that cannot be shaped through legislation. Legislation can protect the church in terms of religious freedom, which we pray for. But legislation cannot unite souls and hearts that, ha- that are divided because of different values. It is only the power. The power represented in baptism. Remember, Paul said we have one gospel, one baptism. It is, it is a message that's foolishness, but not only is the message foolishness to the world. Beloved, I want you to see this morning that the method is foolishness to the world. And when we show the world our method, which you'll see in Paul's writing, the method itself, how the gospel is to be delivered is foolishness to the world and foolishness to some professing Christians. But it is the wisdom and power of prophetic preaching, and prophetic proclamation that has saved us. And that's what we need to remember. I've entitled our sermon this morning A Message and Method Fueled by Crucified Power a message and method fueled by crucified power. I think many leading up to this week placed our faith, in some degree, if we're honest, in a political power. And that's not entirely wrong. I was praying, as many of you were praying, that certain powers would work itself out, not so much in the presidency, but in the Senate, in the House, and that we would have our religious freedoms protected, right? And so you pray that the Lord would protect through political power. But once it's said and done, it ultimately goes back to crucified power. Crucified power is a message that I introduced last week, a message of weakness. It is a message of yielding to spiritual power. So once again, a message and method fueled by crucified power. The cross was weakness. The cross was powerless in a Greco-Roman society. And the cross is seemingly powerless to many Christians even today because they don't believe in it. They stop believing in it when they place their faith in a political figure. And I want to call you back to what unites us. Paul began this message. Once again, like I said last week, we're in First Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, but this whole unit of thought began in 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul began saying, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he went on to talk about what the wisdom of God is and what, and what foolishness it is to the wise, the powerful, and the noble. And he reminded us in last week's message that not many of us came from the intellectual elite of this world, not many of us came from the powerful. Meaning the, the elite, the powerful that's so powerful that their wealth, their money, their influence can control politics. And not many of us came from nobility, noble. Not many of us were Kennedys or came from a family name that just by mere mention of that name, it gave you the essence of power. Yet Jesus saved us through the power of the cross. So I invite you, if you have God's word, take it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, you can pull that up on your electronic device or follow along in your paper Bibles if you still have them. I'm the foolish guy that prays, Lord, I don't mind the rain. I'm Baptist. I pray that there wouldn't be rain for you guys. I don't want the wind because I don't know how to use electronic device. So if there's too much wind, my pages are going to blow everywhere. <laughs> but you guys who are, Technologically astute, no problem for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul wrote this And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. In my speech, in my message, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Point number one this morning is crucified message. Crucified message. What Paul's referring to when he's saying, when I came to you, He's referring to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 11, where he first preached the gospel to Corinth. Paul was the one that brought the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the city of Corinth. And he did not come to the Corinthians with the powerful rhetoric of Greco-Roman society. I want you to understand how countercultural this is. Imagine that you live in a world where debates, I'm talking about real debates, Not just attacking each other, right, and and name calling, but real debate. Rhetoric, argument, referring to philosophy, quoting philosophers and teachers. This is what the Roman world prided themselves upon, being masters of rhetoric and philosophical thought. There was a group called the Sophists. Sophia is a name. But sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. And so their interpretation of wisdom was not some spiritual wisdom, but it was the wisdom to out-argue each other. It was the wisdom to point to facts and and existential reality and say, look, this is what's real and this is what's not. And people prided themselves on the ability to have great rhetoric. In fact, in Greco-Roman culture, speakers would use rhetoric and speeches we're full of flattery and self-promotion. And I'm not making a political statement, but I am saying that you see this in our political world today, right? Boasting. Boasting about accomplishments. I'm talking about the right and the left boasting about political accomplishments, what they've done, what they will do. So I'm, I'm including the left, making promises of what they will do, but they know they can't do it because the Senate will stop them or the House will stop them. Or they, or they don't have enough funding, or it would require raising too much taxes. Now, on the right, you know that that's evident on Twitter. Just continual boasting. Again, not making a political statement, just saying that when you exit politics, you see this on social media, too. You see this in the world of sports. Boasting. Flattery. You see this in Christianity as well. There are times that I've boasted, in a theological position, there are times that i boasted about sports teams, boasting and flattery. But the thing about Greco Roman art, the art of rhetoric, was that you wanted to pop, to um, pump yourself up, if you will, and you wanted to push the other person down with your speech. That was the goal. So it wasn't that Paul didn't know how to do this. It was that he refused to do so because the very act of doing so, of even defending himself when people attacked him by putting down his opponents, would nullify the very message that he preached. You see, his message was foolish because it was a horrendous message. Imagine us today, and we've alluded to this, but I'll repeat it to you, us going forward, and some guy who the world condemned to die on an electric chair, that we praise this guy, dying a criminal's death, not just life in prison, but he was accused of crimes so vile. Actually, he bore all those sins that we're praising some guy who, was a, who died on an electric chair, and that the electric chair becomes the symbol of our faith. Imagine that. When we say the cross has the power to save, could you imagine wearing necklaces with an electric chair hanging from it? T-shirts, bumper stickers with an electric chair, or lethal injection? But that's exactly what Christ represented. What a foolish and offensive me- uh, offensive picture of a Savior. You say someone is your king to convince someone that someone could rise from the dead is purely foolish. It defies science. It defies common sense. It defies what's existential and real. And to even have a picture of a king who had a thorn of crown slammed upon him, bleeding, shamefully naked on the cross. All his friends abandoned him. The people abandoned him. And how ugly is that picture of this man hanging there And for us to say that that is our king, Paul knew that if he tried to say, look at my God, look at my Savior, he's so much better than your gods. He's much more powerful than Zeus or Xerxes. I mean, people would look at him and say, how foolish. Are you serious? That's your king? And so for him to adopt flattery and rhetoric would undermine the very Savior and Messiah that he's proclaiming. The gospel is not wise at all it is not powerful at all in terms of human rhetoric and power but it is the power to save why would you and i believe in it it is because there is spirit and power there's the holy spirit which we'll get to and what paul did was that paul didn't again there's nothing wrong with apologetics in acts he refers to philosophy first right to the various gods and he says i want you to to hear the god that has no name the God of the unknown, right? He, he does know how to use apologetics. But here, notice that he doesn't begin by debunking evolution. He doesn't begin with classical apologetics in, in terms of, he doesn't say, let me first convince you that there is a beginning. And then let me first convince you that the beginner was moral and that he had design. I'm not condemning that. I'm saying, that's not what he did. He, he, he came and he put the cross first. The first thing he did was say, I want to tell you about the guy who died on the cross. I want to tell you about Israel's Messiah, that he is your Messiah. That's what he did. He, he put the cross first. And so notice verse 1, the testimony of God. The Greek word used for testimony is mysterion, And that's, that word can be translated as mystery, which refers to the message of the gospel In other places, this word mystery of God means God's hidden plan to save both Jews and Gentiles through the Jewish Messiah. And in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, it's revealed that the Jewish Messiah wants to save Gentiles. That itself is foolish. You're saying the Jews who hate us, so as Gentiles, right? You're saying the Jews who don't like us and we don't like them, that they're a Messiah? Their Messiah is our Messiah. He's our king. That's foolishness, seemingly. But he put that first. Paul did not proclaim the gospel. It says, with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, verse 2, when he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's not saying that he only taught about Christ death and resurrection he's not saying that that's the only thing he taught about you look at his letters they're replete with christian living they're complete with doctrine addressing all types of theological truth and practical application instead we what he's saying is that the that christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection was central to his message that everything that he proclaimed hung on the balance of the cross he says it in first corinthians 15 That if the resurrection did not happen all of christianity is void and again this was important so that the corinthians would not boast about the strength of their gospel and he would not boast in how strong his arguments would be instead he would be able to say i came preaching the weakness and foolishness of the cross and it saved you that's the message that saved us it's christ and him crucified That's what Paul means when he said in verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so that's point number one. Point number one is a crucified message. It is the message that's offensive and foolish, yet how many of us believed in it? I just want you to think about that. Christianity is not dead. You would think that such a foolish message would have died in the first century, but it has continued. Beloved, don't be afraid if religious freedom is taken away. You know, Our president-elect, if it is confirmed, has said in the first 100 days he would pass the Equality Act. So we shouldn't be angry. We shouldn't be afraid. The first thing that we've done as a church is we've talked to our insurance. In fact, yesterday, our faithful trustees got in a Zoom call with our insurance, and I got to sit down on that call, and I asked them about, do we need to worry about the Equality Act? What do we need to do to prepare? We need to look at our bylaws, make sure they're up to date. We need to look at all of our policies, make sure they're up to date. And we're going to send them over, and their legal is going to review it for us. But right now, we don't have to worry. right? If the Senate holds, it, it won't pass. If it does pass, well, we're ready. We don't have to be afraid, beloved. The church needs, just needs to be ready. We don't need to become angry. We don't need to become bitter. We just need to be ready. And being ready means that we remember that we do our part. But Christ is sovereign, right? So the cross is foolishness to the world, and is it is not legislative power That protects the church. From the beginning of time, the governments, the Roman government, Roman emperors, have tried to suppress Christianity. And when one emperor tried to make Christianity the government religion, that didn't work either because people's hearts weren't converted. Jesus Christ converts individuals. And even in East Asia now, in places where The gospel is suppressed in Muslim countries. The church continues to grow. Because it is not legislative power, political power, or human power that propels or fuels the church. Beloved, it is spiritual, invisible power. That's the reality. That is what protects the freedom of the conscience that cannot be bound invisibly. It can be bound legislatively, but it cannot be bound invisibly, spiritually. Nobody can tell you how to talk to your family and how to disciple your family. If you are afraid of the moral decline of our nation, there is one thing that will ensure that our nation... And our churches and our Christianity does not sink. And it is not what happens in Washington. It's what happens around the dinner table in your homes. Because parents, you are responsible. We are responsible for teaching our children. And nobody can come into your homes and tell you you can't do that. Even if they say you cannot do that in school, That's nothing new in the state of California, that you cannot do that on the playing field. You cannot do that in the workplace. That's nothing new to us. Don't be angry. Don't become upset. But nobody can tell you how to preach that foolish message and disciple your children. And as long as the family unit... See, as long as we have the family units, we have the church. Do you remember the Abrahamic covenants? Do you remember the cultural mandates? Be fruitful and multiply. That's before the fall of man. The original plan was Adam and Eve, you would be fruitful and you would multiply. And through the family unit, missions would happen before the fall of man. The mission of God, spreading image bearers of God being reproduced through the family units across the face of the earth. So when you see any agenda that tries to destroy the traditional family, don't be angry. This, you know that we're not up against human powers, but spiritual the, the powers of the evil one, principalities and powers. Then, after the fall of man, what happened in Genesis 3? Eve, through you, through childbirth, through you, a Redeemer will come. Who will reverse the curse? And then that promise gets carried over to Abraham. What's the promise? Abraham, through your offspring, families, I will make you great. I will make you a a person of many families. Many nations will come from you, right? A great nation, many families. And it's through your seed what happens. All the families of this earth will be blessed right So where is the central crux of missions? It's the family. That's the foolishness of the gospel. The foolishness of the gospel is that that power is that power is protected as long as we have families and we'll always have families. So even when you see what's happening in this world, if you read scripture, You won't be alarmed. You'll know, of course, family is going to be the first thing on the front line that Satan's going to attack. But as long as you have families, you have the church, and the church is built on families. Pastor Terrence, under that mass, hopefully he's like, amen. You guys can scream at me. You guys can scream amen. Point number two, crucified method. Crucified method. The powers of this world are every other method, political power, media power, education power, educating through the education system, power to shape minds and transform. The crucified method is one of weakness. It happens from within the heart and flows in to the church. Verse 3, let me read this to you, crucified method. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Verse 4, and my speech... And my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. First, let's define weakness, fear, and trembling. When you see this here, when, when Paul says, I was with you in Corinth in Acts 18, because he's writing to them remotely now, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Weakness, fear, and trembling. It doesn't. This is not referring to natural human weakness or fear. Some commentators think that Paul was saying he was nervous. That we, when he came to them, he was trembling in anxiety. That's not what it's talking about. Others are saying because Paul had some physical ailments, that that's what he's saying. That he's saying that, that he had some physical ailments. He was with them while he was sick. That's not what he's saying. Instead, fear and trembling should not be interpreted as anxiety or physical ailment. Instead, fear and trembling describes Paul's state before God. When I speak before you today, I know that it's not actually happening. But every time before I get up behind a sacred desk, I imagine and pray that when I speak, That the angels of heaven are flanking me as long as I preach the word of God. That there is authority because I am not that educated. You guys know me. I'm very foolish. I love sports. I'm not very cultured. I don't watch movies. But when I preach weakness, fear, and trembling because I know that As long as we preach what the Word of God says, we're standing on the shoulder of angelic power. You don't need to listen to me or any of our pastors. You listen to the Holy Spirit that lives in you when the Word of God goes out. It does not come back void because it is the Spirit of God that has sealed your conscience, that's going to keep you awake at night, that says what that crazy guy said, that's truth. And you will be rolling around in bed, being convicted, not by what we say, but because your conscience is hearing the Spirit of God preach. And he digs that word deep. That's what Paul means, is that when he's preaching, it's, he's like Isaiah, that he just came out of the throne room where he was shaking. Because regardless of who's sitting on in the White House or who's sitting in the courts, he knows who sits on the throne. You don't believe me? Look at 2 Corinthians 7.15 where Paul uses the same language. 2 Corinthians 7, chapter 7, verse 15. Here's what he says. He says, And his affection for you is even greater. And as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. What does he mean by that? He's not saying that the Corinthians received Christ Because they were anxious. He's not saying because the Corinthians were physically in ailment. He's saying when these mostly Gentiles, when they received Christ, something was happening to them. They They were in fear and trembling. They had reverence for this Jewish Messiah. They had reverence as if God was speaking to them. And yes, that might have included manifestations and power but that manifestation those manifestations were from God they were supernatural they caused reverence as if God from heaven showed up as Paul preached the gospel you don't believe me beloved you look at philippians chapter 2 philippians chapter 2 verses 12b to 13 that means the second part of verse 12 and 13 philippians 2 same verbiage look at the context Paul says to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Doesn't mean in anxiety. Doesn't mean stuttering in weakness. Doesn't mean in physical disease. But in, and then verse 13, it says, for it is God who it has at work in you. That's what's happening. God is working in people. That's supernatural. Both to will and work for his good pleasure. So as we work out our christian faith in fear and trembling in reverence as if god is here with us because he is as if he's moving invisibly which he is as if he's turning hearts that are hardened against him which he does performing miracles of conversion which he does it is as if god is here and he is he's at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. You see, one commentator puts it this way. In Corinth, quote, the audience was expected to evaluate a rhetorical speech and compare it to others. Rhetorers expected the audience to judge their oral performance. The Corinthians were not acting differently from others who had been raised in a culture that had certain expectations about rhetorical performance. End quote. You have to understand that Paul knew this. Paul knew that as he was speaking for the very first time in Corinth to non-Christians, that how they were schooled, that they were examining how good his speech was. He knew this. They also were doing it. Because that's how their school, that's just how it was. So they're listening to him. How good's his argument? How clear is his preaching? Is he from the Alexandrian school? Which Apollos actually, his rhetoric was an Alexandrian rhetoric. I really like Apollos, by the way. So there's nothing wrong with that. Paul was a rabbinic model of teaching because he was a Pharisee in training, but he knew secular training. He knew how to preach and speak. So he knew. Imagine that. Imagine if you're going to speak to anyone, uh, it's wise that you understand who you're speaking to, right? And you know how they're thinking. But that's what he means. When he says he knows exactly what they're looking for and he doesn't give it to them. That's what he means in verse 4. He says, My speech, he's not talking about speech pathology. Some people are saying that he stuttered a lot, that he mumbled. He says, My speech, it was clear. And my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Plausible means it makes sense. So he's not saying that he was purposely unclear or or convoluted in what he's saying or that he was illogical or didn't make sense. You know Paul knows how to make arguments. You know that. He says, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom according to your standards. But in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, meaning he preached the gospel And it demonstrated that even though he did not adopt whatever popular rhetorical methods, that in the demonstration of spirit and power, that's how they were saved. Now, what's spirit and power? These two are connected, okay? So you could read this as spiritual power. It can be rendered and translated that way in the original languages, spiritual power. Now, spirit is talking about the Holy Spirit's power. So this is spiritual power. And so, again, some people were saying that as he preached, people were were, were responding in the gift of tongues. And uh, as he preached, some people were were experiencing healing. And some people began prophesying. I do not take that position, not because I don't believe those gifts existed, and not because I believe they've completely ceased. I take a conservative view on that, but we will uh, explain this when we get to chapter 12 through 14. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying here because the thrust of where he's going in chapter 1 and 2 is attacking the disunity and division in the church. And one of the things they were dividing, the very thing that they were dividing over was, I have the gift of tongues. I'm better than you. He has the gift of prophecy. He has the gift of healing. These guys are better than you guys, right? So if that's what they're fighting over, he's not going to say, I came with that power. I am so much better than you guys. In fact, he's saying, I'm coming with weakness. I'm coming without those things. I'm coming with, with the spirit of power. So I, what I think he's talking about is conversion. That is a conservative interpretation. I think that when he's talking about spiritual power, he's talking about spiritual conversion, which is a supernatural miracle. And after that conversion happens, yes, in Corinth, the believers, some of the believers receive these manifestations and these gifts, other Spiritual believers, other believers receive other spiritual gifts. And then in verse 5, he gives you the reason. And the so that, in the Greek, is the henna clause. This is verse 5. Here's the reason. So that your faith, your salvation, might not rest in the wisdom of men, meaning the arguments of, of convincing people through secular rhetoric and power, but in the power of God. That's what... His point is, and actually his thrust is to unite people. So this is what evangelicals need to hear today. We need to return to spiritual power. Not that we don't care about what happens in politics, but that we care enough to care, and then we sit back and say, well, ultimately spiritual power is what is going to bring about change. And we need spiritual power. Charles Spurgeon said it perfectly when he's put it this way. He says, quote, the power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be c- the converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning, which means how educated or how much information the preacher is able to give. Continuing, quote, otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. End quote. And this is what I mean, that preachers must take our stand behind our pulpits. Parents must take your stand As you put down the tantrums of your children, struggle, pull your hair out, and try to raise them. Help your kids with their schooling. Help them understand the worldview. Right? It's not human power. It's spiritual power. Just to pause for a moment and say, God, I can't do this. I need your power right now. I need spiritual power. To understand that we must be prophetic, not partisan. Prophetic means we interpret for people Society, What's going on? We need to begin to interpret for people how to understand what's happening in society, how to understand what's happening in this world, not by social media, not by what the media says, not by what the newspapers say. I'm not, I'm not saying be a hermit and don't read any of it. I'm just saying the final crux of interpretation must be prophetic, which means we use Scripture, we use Christ. We understand the covenants and how they relate to each other. We understand redemption. And we understand the power that we have through prayer. And it, it is that prophetic power that we speak life into society and into culture. And that is the prophetic voice that Paul's talking about. It is a spiritual power. It converts the soul. Let me conclude the exposition and then I'll, I'll give you a few quick application. And it won't be long, and you'll be back in your cars. Or maybe not today, but soon you'll be back in your cars. The reason why the cross is at the heart of the gospel is so that our salvation would not rest upon human ability or power. That's Paul's point. It is the foolish power of the cross that saves our souls. The cross conveys brokenness, weakness, and the miracle of conversion. And this is opposed to any rhetorical brilliance or man's argumentation. The big idea, the main point this morning is this, and it's on your outlines. It's we proclaim Christ crucified so that the Christian conversion will rest upon divine power, not human persuasion. I think that's pretty clear from the scriptures. We proclaim Christ crucified so that Christian conversion will not rest upon divine power, but human persuasion. Here's three short application points, and we'll continue to expand on these prophetically in the weeks to come. Here's what our nation needs. Here's what evangelicalism needs. We need to reunite at this time, regardless of what happens on, in December, when the, when the courts confirm the president-elect or confirm whatever happens. This is what we need come January, when uh, the president is inaugurated, whoever he will be. Number one, we need to reunite around the mission of the church, which is disciple making. When we remember the mission of the church, we will remember the priority of our relationships. We will remember what Jesus has commanded and called us to. It's very simple He's called us to make disciples. What did those disciples look like? Well, He's also given us great commandments. So remember what God has commanded us to do. He's commanded us to make disciples. Disciples who love God and love neighbor. Disciples who love God and love one another. He's said it over and over again because he knew we needed to hear it. Over and over again, like a broken record throughout the New Testament, love one another, love one another, love one another. They will know, the watching world will know that you are mine that you are Christians if you love one another. And what the watching world sees today is evangelicalism polarized and divided by politics. So we need to reunite around the mission of the church to make disciples who love God and love people. And we can't love people if we don't first love one another, who, whom we share a common baptism, a common testimony, right? And it's in the family now I'm moving into your individual families where the power of the gospel can be taught and modeled through discipleship. It is the role of the church, pastors and leaders, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which is to make disciples in the church and in the home and in your communities. And so that's what, what we return to. We continue disciple making. We continue equipping. God has blessed us. God has shown us how in the midst of a pandemic we have a parking lot we have a lot of space we can continue to use this let's pray for the church you know I'm friends with a lot of pastors pray for them they're struggling these are good solid churches that were renting schools the schools aren't open so they're not open. and when the schools reopen those schools don't have to renew those leases so they're online indefinitely now, I know many of you are worshiping at home, and we love you for doing so because you have to, because you're susceptible or you're protecting your elderly parents from con- uh, contracting COVID-19. So that's awesome that we can continue to live stream. Right? So there's a lot of churches. We have our mother church. We have sister churches. We have friends who are in more urban parts of Los Angeles, and they don't have parking lot space like this. We do. We do. So even when it rains, you can go into your cars. We have churches in places where it's freezing, it's snowing, it's it's cold. Guys, we have a lot to unite around and celebrate, and we need your help. You know, we have that land right there that's yet to be developed. Isn't it by God's sovereignty that we haven't made hard plans, hard plans to invest millions of dollars to do that phase where we do that three-story building? Or even... Put bungalows in, we haven't made that decision. Right? We didn't know a pandemic was coming. So you're talking about whatever we want to do, even temporarily, another flat piece of outdoor space, courtyard. We got a lot, and we're in California, Southern California, where 70 degrees means cold. Beloved, let's celebrate what we do have and how we can come together as a church. And I know many of you guys are tired of online. And we can do this safely if COVID continues. We can do this by keeping our distance, by wearing our masks, by loving one another. We have room. We can bring some ministries back if we cooperate and work together and use our outdoor space. We can do children's ministry, spread it out, spread it out underneath tents and canopies with people who feel comfortable outdoors. We can help disciple each other. Beloved, God has been good to us. We've not lost anything. We just have to believe in the resources that we have. But once you lose your mission and start fighting over anything, politics, COVID, anything, then forget about it. We forgot our mission. That's why we need to remember our mission, disciple making, and the resources that God has given us. How will we use our facility? By God's grace, our insurance agency told us yesterday they will cover us if we want to use our facility wisely for emergency response. So, next time there's a huge fire, how can we bless our community? We can if we're willing to organize. We cannot lose sight of the mission. Reunite around a mission, point number one, application number one. Number two, reconcile relationships around the gospel the gospel gives us the spiritual power to reconcile all conflicts all differences and we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come in first corinthians reconcile differences that power comes through the gospel remember what unites us is invisible right but we have it in the gospel and then number three reunite around the persecution of the church Yes. Have you ever thought about that? When the church is persecuted, you stop fighting over tertiary and surface and things. When the church is persecuted, if there is more persecution in the coming days that revolve around sexuality, gender issues, marriage, identity, churches will unite around the gospel. Churches will unite around the essentials. Sometimes, beloved, persecution is a good thing. It's a good thing when we realize what we're fighting for and what's at stake. And so, three things. Reunite around the mission of the church, which is disciple-making. Reconcile our relationships around the gospel, number two. And number three, reunite around the coming persecution of the church. And continuing to pray for Christians all around this globe who are actually under fierce persecution. So I, I invite you now to pray with me. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing one more song and I'm going to come back up here and lead us in the benediction. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you and we thank you for what we can celebrate, the resources that you've given us, starting with the spiritual resource of the gospel. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to move in our hearts, be that solid rock that we stand upon, the foundation Jesus Christ, the unshakable truth, Christ and the resurrected truth that is made clear and plain through the gospel. Father, I pray that our church will be prophetic in the days to come. I pray, Lord, that we would fears, fearlessly seek to unify around the truth and, and be that voice that evangelicalism needs that's united. Father, I pray for any broken relationships in our families that you would unite them now father i want to pray for all the disciple makers that you would give us wisdom and discernment in terms of how to make disciples in challenging times and will you give your cover of protection over everyone who's here and everyone who's listening at home in the midst of an ongoing pandemic and numbers that are surging in certain parts of the world and in certain parts of this nation but we thank you for what you have given us In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.